Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Lori Berenson is a 35-year-old woman from New York City who has been in prison in Peru since 1996 for allegedly conspiring with Peruvian revolutionaries known as the MRTA, Movimiento Revolucionario Tupac Amaru. She was convicted twice in Peru, first by judges who shrouded themselves in hoods, and then again by a slightly more open proceeding, but still one in which due process was denied, as unanimously determined by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, based in Costa Rica. However, on appeal, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, also based in Costa Rica, affirmed Lori's 20-year prison sentence in December of 2004. In this interview, we talk with Kristen Gardner, a supporter and friend of Lori Berenson since they first met as students at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in 1983. We talk about Lori, the person she is, and about her case. Kristen Gardner, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you. Tell us how you knew Lori Berenson, where you met, how your friendship developed with her. Okay, well, we met um, as college students back in Boston. Um, I was a sophomore, and she came as a freshman, and we became roommates. And um, we just hit it off right away, became very close friends. And then she also really became my political inspiration. What did she do that inspired you? You're a woman who's certainly politically active now. Yeah, I am, and I was a bit before I went to college, but I you know, thought that I should get some kind of degree or certain education before I went out to try to make a difference in the world. And what I really learned from Lori is it's something you need to do every day. Just whatever else you're doing every day, you need to be committed to social change and political activism. And she was very committed. What kinds of political activism was she involved in when you were both students at MIT? Primarily Latin America. She's always been fascinated by Latin America. So at that time, she was doing research about um, immigrants coming in from other countries and what their political experience was here. And she also took trips to um, Latin America and saw some of the things happening um, for herself, which was very moving to her. Tell us what you know about Lori's initial involvement with the politics of Peru. Well, let's see. She visited me right before she went to Peru, and she went down there to travel around see what she thought, see if she wanted to stay down there. I remember getting letters from her that she was particularly moved by Peru, that just the level of poverty she saw there, and that there still was a lot of uh, agrarian society, but that it was being dismantled. People in other countries at least had potatoes to eat, but that in Peru she was seeing some people didn't have anything to eat for days at a time. That's the trip that she's still on. She went there like December of 1994 on her travels, just got very interested in Peru and stayed there and connected up with a couple of publications in the U.S. and was writing articles for them about the politics in Peru. During that time in the mid-90s, what sort of things was she saying about what was going on in Peru? 
you know, originally I think it was her first impressions, her traveling, what she was seeing, the people that she was meeting. And I think the poverty was really the main thing that, that struck her. But then something happened that resulted in her being arrested. She was taken off of a bus in Lima. And yes. she was accused of? She was accused of treason to the fatherland. That is Peru, which is not her fatherland, but that was the accusation against her. And it was she was arrested after being there less than a year. They took her off of a bus, and there was another woman on the bus who had been taking photographs for her articles. And that woman was um, in some way connected to the MRTA, which is one of the rebel groups down there. And so I think she just basically had met people that were in this group. And while they were tracking those folks, came across Lori and arrested her as they were trying to pursue the MRTA. A big part of Lori's story is that she's been a political pawn from day one. The president in Peru at the time... That was Alberto Fujimori. Fujimori, exactly. He really put Lori on show and said, oh, I've caught a you know, U.S. terrorist who's coming down here to ruin our country. Um, and he got a lot of political support from the people of Peru for that. Um, even though there was absolutely no evidence against her, he just went on TV the day after he, she got arrested and said, you know, she's a North American terrorist. She's done horrible things. Um, and that's really been the story all along with her case. Before we discuss the first of her series of trials, let's jump ahead a little bit. And I'd like you to describe your role in the Free Lori organization. That's freelori.org. Shortly after Lori being arrested, her parents got very involved working with the U.S. government here because it is the responsibility of the United States to work for its citizens. And if someone is unjustly arrested abroad, the president is supposed to do everything he can in his power to bring that person back to the U.S. But on top of working with the government, we also started up a grassroots campaign to really make people here aware of not only Lori's case, but the injustices happening in Peru, which we tend to not be that aware of in the U.S. We see more news about other parts of the world. Her case really has brought the politics of Peru more to the forefront here. I did a lot of grassroots organizing, speaking tours, um, demonstrations to try to bring attention to what was going on in Peru. So going back to what was going on in Peru in relationship to Lori Berenson, she was arrested. She was charged with crimes against the fatherland. There was a trial. Tell us about the trial, the manner in which it was conducted. First, I'd like to put a little bit of context as far as what was going on politically in Peru. is a very important part of all of her trials, which was um, in 1980 to about 2000, there was an internal war going on in Peru. And most people know of the Shining Path or the Sendero Luminoso was the big rebel group. Um, in Peru. And there were a lot of people being killed by the Shining Path, but also a lot by the Peruvian government. So at the time Lori was arrested, President Fujimori, um, his big piece of work was to try to quell this rebellion that was happening. But what he was really doing was repressing any dissent in the country, not just this particular rebellion. He rewrote the Constitution, closed down the Congress, and wrote a lot of anti-terrorism laws that were so vague that anybody could be arrested and charged with terrorism for handing out political flyers, for speaking, you know, for just speaking your political beliefs in a cafe. Um, you could be arrested and charged with terrorism. So that was what was going on at the time that she was arrested. And so her first trial was not really a trial. It was a hooded military tribunal that only lasted a few minutes. 
she had no lawyer. She had no chance to speak, to give any defense. By hooded, you're referring to the fact that the judges were wearing hoods over their heads so that their faces could not be seen. Right, because the idea was there were all these terrorists in the country, and if um, a judge was, if their face was seen, that they would get killed by the terrorists later on. It's all part of this um, anti-terrorist movement where, you know, it was okay to torture people, it was okay to give these so-called trials that had a 97% conviction rate, um, it was okay to have unlawful detentions. I mean, all of that was condoned by the, is condoned by the anti-terrorist laws. And she was convicted after a short trial in front of judges who were wearing hoods and was sentenced to life in prison. Yes. So she was given life in prison basically for being a leader of the MRTA, a small rebel group in Peru at that time. I mean, there was absolutely nothing to substantiate this, but they didn't need anything to substantiate it under the laws that they have. And then what happened? She was sent to jail near Puno, Peru. It's Yanamayo, close to 13,000 feet. And at this point, her case has actually brought attention to that prison, and they are going to be forced to fix it up or get rid of it um, because it's extremely high altitude where people get sick very easily. And Lori has gone through that. She was there for a number of years. It definitely impacted her circulation and other health issues that she still has till now. After being there, she did get moved to a lower altitude town, um, Arequipa. And then from there, she was moved to Lima, which is um, sea level. During that time, there was activity both in the United States and in Peru trying to force a retrial where she would have uh, what is considered to be due process under the American or English system of law, the right to confront your witnesses and present witnesses in your own behalf. I think basically the first so-called trial was so atrocious, so obviously out of alignment with international standards. Because she is from the U.S. or from another country other than Peru, they had international people looking in on this trial, looking in on this case. And so Peru did finally feel pushed to give her a new trial. And a number of political prisoners are getting these new trials, but they're still based on the same anti-terrorism laws, like I said before, that are so vague. Her second trial still wasn't based on laws that met international standards. They don't meet standards of the American Convention on Human Rights. The trial still was based on the assumption that she was guilty. In fact, Montesinos, who was Fujimori's right-hand man, had previously said in the media, oh, we'll give her a new trial and she'll get 20 years. That was Vladimiro Montesinos, who was the director of investigations and the anti-terrorism section of the Peruvian government. Yes. Who at this point is also in jail himself. Yes. And Fujimori uh, went on a trip to Japan uh, where he claims his ancestry. And in the course of that trip, he sought political asylum in Japan and remains there. Yes, he's still in Japan, and there has been there have been efforts to extradite him back to Peru to face charges um, like Montesinos has faced of abuse of human rights. So far, Japan has not chosen to send him back. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Kristen Gardner, who lives and works part-time in Mendocino County and part-time in Alameda County. 
Kristen Gardner was a friend of Lori Berenson when they were both students at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, in the early 1980s. Kristen became involved in the Lori Berenson Defense Organization and is telling us about what Lori was accused of and what the circumstances of her imprisonment are in Peru. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Kristen, in a second trial, she was found guilty. And sentenced to 20 years like Montesino said that she would be. It was very apparent that that trial was rigged from the beginning. And again, there was still no real evidence that she had done anything. They basically were saying just the fact that she had been to the congressional building showed that she was trying to gather information for the MRTA um, when actually she was there interviewing Congress members for her articles. They said that because she had a hand-drawn map of the Congress building, which is public information, that she was collecting more secret information for the MRTA. And these are events that occurred shortly, if not immediately, before her arrest. Yes. Around that time, there was a group of people uh, who took over the Japanese embassy. What was their influence in the political feeling and sentiment in Peru at the time? Actually, the Japanese embassy was taken over a year after Lori was arrested. And what happens is history gets rewritten around this case um, due to the media in Peru. And they say that she was involved in the Japanese embassy takeover, which she'd already been in prison for a year at that point. People to this day, I've been on radio shows where uh, people from Peru have called in who've now moved to the U.S. and said, oh, she killed thousands and thousands of people. Um, which she's not even accused of killing anybody. But the media around her case has been so sensationalist that, as I said, history's been completely rewritten around what's happened. Going back to what happened in the course of her trial, and in the second trial, she was again found guilty, but she did have an opportunity to present a defense before judges who were not wearing masks, and her defense wasn't believed. Her trials, even the second trial, was not about whether or not there was evidence or what she had to say to, for herself. You know, most people looking on in on that case, certainly any of the observers from the United States who went there, it was obvious there was no evidence. It was obvious um, there was no reason to convict her. But the conviction, again, was all about the political situation in Peru at the time, which was this strong anti-terrorist sentiment. They had to repress any dissent at all. And so Lori's case being such a huge public case in Peru, they could not let that go by. They could not say, we made a mistake, um, she's not guilty. They kept having to make an example of her basically to the rest of the country that this is what will happen to you. Part of her defense team included the former attorney general of the United States, Ramsey Clark. Yes. What was his role? Well, the U.S. attorneys could not represent her in the Peruvian courts, but they certainly could give advice. They could help out with the um, work with the U.S. government. They could do an analysis of the situation. Ramsey's very good at understanding all the politics around the law. So he's been a great advisor for the work in the U.S. and also a great advisor to the lawyers in Peru, but he's not allowed to directly represent her in the Peruvian courts. When was the second conviction? That happened um, in June 2001. After that, 
It was appealed to a court that is based in San Jose, Costa Rica. What was the basis of the appeal? Well, it's the Organization of American States, and they have an Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and an Inter-American Court on Human Rights. And first you start with the commission, and then you go to the court. So the reason why um, they were able to take Lori's case there was because there was no due process in Lori's case. These courts rule on due process, whether or not someone got a fair trial. They don't rule on whether or not Lori was guilty or innocent. They look at the procedure. Correct. What procedural issues were raised? Basically, they had a unanimous finding that um, Lori's rights were violated uh, based on the American Convention of Human Rights. After the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights made the unanimous determination that Lori's rights uh, had been abridged by Peru, what happened next? Uh, basically, Peru refused to comply um, with that finding, and that's um, happened a number of times. The uh, the court the the Organization of American States is a voluntary body, and countries can choose or not choose to comply with any of the findings, but um, they have better international standing if they do comply. And Peru has been so out of alignment with international standards, they have actually left the court before. They've left the Organization of American States before rather than comply with these findings that they keep having against them. But at the time of the findings of the commission, they were a member of, of the organization. Yes. But they have, been, they have they left before that, and Toledo, uh, after Fujimori left, um, Toledo brought them back into... That's Alejandro Toledo, mm -hmm. who is the current president of Peru, who grew up as a in a poverty-stricken family in the Peruvian Andes and worked as a shoeshine boy, came down to the coast of Peru and was befriended by some Peace Corps volunteers in the early 1960s, came to California and eventually left California with a PhD from Stanford. Correct. Actually, I saw him at Stanford a couple of years ago. We demonstrated against him when he came to uh, speak at the graduation. <laughs> but So his role in the situation concerning the decision of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights was what? Well, so he refused to comply with that finding, and he said he would comply with whatever the court found. So Lori's case then moves on to the Inter-American Court um, and has take them, taken them a couple of years to look at her case, and finally um, this December came out with um, a finding on it. That's in December of 2004? Yes. What was the decision? Well, the decision at that time was that there was nothing wrong with her trial, that she had been given her full rights by those trials. The court overruled the commission, which is something they had not previously done. Correct. In the past, they had sustained the commission. They have always sustained the commission. And not only that, but they have always found um, Peru's anti-terrorism laws to be in violation of the American Convention on Human Rights. So this was the first time ever for them to suddenly say, no, Peru's anti-terrorism laws are fine um, in the case of Lori's case. But the confusing part in this finding was that even though they said Lori's case was fine, they still said that um, 
Peru needed to change their anti-terrorism laws. So there was a complete contradiction within their own finding there. What's the analysis of the court decision? Well, um, as information came out, it was very interesting to look at that actually in November, the judge that represented Peru had made a public statement that the draft of the resolution from the court was in Lori's favor and probably calling for her release. And so the analysis is somewhere between November and December, Peru put a lot of pressure on the court to change its decision. Um, and they did that basically by, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened behind the closed doors, but from what we could see in the Peruvian media and from the public statements from the officials in Peru, is they were saying that they were threatening to pull out of the Organization of American States again. They were threatening not to comply with the finding. They were saying that if this court allows Lori to get out of prison, that it will allow hundreds of terrorists to get out of prison, and, you know, it'll wreak havoc on Peru again. And so we believe that the court basically um, submitted to a lot of pressure from Peru and fully reversed its decision on Lori. What would be the interest of Alejandro Toledo in leading that kind of directive? Well, um, there are a few different things. He's very weak right now. He has about a 6% approval rating in the country. And one of the historical moves that President Fujimori used was showing that he was tough on terrorism, tended to get public support. And so to some extent, I think we see Toledo um, repeating that, that here's one place. He's, most people do not support Toledo. He's considered very weak. And here's one place in which can, he can say um, he's making strong steps to protect Peru from all of these terrorists. And he's come out and said, we will not let anybody out who's been convicted of terrorism. Kristen, you're painting somewhat of a bleak uh, picture of Peru, which is a country that has a place in my personal history. I lived there for several years in the early 60s when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I've been following Peru since 1964. Um, it can't be all bad. It's certainly not all bad. I mean, for one thing, I've traveled down there, and it's beautiful, and there are wonderful people. And... Um, there are some changes happening politically there that I think are for the better. As I said before, we hadn't have never um, even paid that much attention to Peru here in the U.S. And Lori's case has really brought it more to the forefront and have, things have happened now, like the court ruling that um, Peru must change their anti-terrorism laws, um, ending the hooded trials that Lori went through. She brought you know international attention onto those hooded trials also international attention to Yanomayo Prison, which will um, either hopefully get seriously changed or closed down in the next year. And also um, a couple of people who've been working closely on Lori's case are now in Peru and have started a support group for political prisoners, helping them legally and helping them reintegrate into society when they get out. Where is Lori Berenson now? Um, she's outside of Cajamarca, which is about an hour flight north of Lima. Her sentence of 20 years was sustained. Mm -hmm. How long has she been in jail? Nine years. And it's expected that she would be there for another 11 years? Well, I... What, what are the mm -hmm. hopes? What are the, the expectations? Well, 
My personal expectations are that she will not do a full 11 years. I really think that the situation in Peru will change over time. There are thousands of political prisoners in Peru, and some of them are getting out. Many of them were college students. Many of them were just working people. And as they get out of prison, people will start to realize that everyone who's in jail is not a terrorist, that there were many mistakes made. And so I really think that the public perception will start to change at some point, and the politics there will start to change at some point. I really don't expect 11 years. We also are looking into, can we find a way to get her pardoned or an amnesty so that she can be let out? Um, I just wanted to also mention another thing about the ruling on her case, which is um, very frightening. It not only... Um, affects her, but it does affect the thousands of other prisoners in Peru who are um, unlawfully detained or have been found guilty under these um, anti-terrorism laws. And now they do not have a international route for appealing their cases um, now that the this court has basically found against them all. What is the organization now that's devoting itself to Lori Berenson? Um, it's the campaign to free Lori Berenson, and like you said, it, there's a website, Free Lori, but her name is spelled L-O-R-I dot org. Is Lori Berenson able to receive mail from people who she does not know? Yes. What would the address be? How could someone write to her if they wanted to do that? Um, you could look it up at the website, and then you would it would probably go to her parents um, who would take it with them when they go. And they live in New York City. Yes. Well, Kristen Gardner, thank you for sharing this story with us. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book? Um, yeah. Recently I read Hope in the Dark, which is by Rebecca Solnit. And basically it's a look at social activism recently, um, where I think right now people are feeling very... Um, disheartened about the politics in the U.S. and the direction that the U.S. is going. And it's a, it's a re-look at the successes that we have had in our work. Kristen Gardner, friend and former college roommate of Lori Berenson, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much. Kristen Gardner is a supporter and friend of Lori Berenson since they first met as students at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1983. You may locate further information about Lori Berenson and her case at freelori.org. Lori is spelled L-O-R-I. The book Kristen Gardner recommends is Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 
707-621-5482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.